Good evening. We're going to um, look this week and next week at um, the letters to the seven churches, and um, that's chapters two and three of the Revelation. So let me pray for us, and uh, we'll begin, and I'll, I'll uh, show you how we're going to do this. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we come before you this evening with, um, with hearts that are, um, that are glad, hearts that are grateful. Um, Lord, probably, um, probably not as glad and as grateful as they uh, maybe ought to be, uh, and certainly not as glad and grateful as they're going to be, but, but glad and grateful uh, for uh, how much you love us and for um, how faithful you are in preserving us and in keeping us. Um, we, um, we, we do marvel uh, at your grace directed toward uh, and, and encompassing and gathering up and enfolding uh, undeserving sinners like us. And all of these things, Lord, that we, that we thought about this morning um, uh, are, are just bits and pieces of the, the glory of the salvation that you have secured for us. And we, we do thank you for it and pray that as we meet this evening, you would uh, again come and be with us. We ask you to help us as we, uh, as we seek to know your mind, know your word, and understand its, its application to our lives. I thank you that this book is for us, uh, as are the other 65 books. Uh, in your word. Uh, And so use this this evening for the encouragement of your people. And then, uh, Lord, uh, send us out from this place into this week ahead uh, so that by your grace we might, um, in some small way, give evidence to the world around us of of the reality of your grace and uh, of the presence of your kingdom. We pray, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Okay, just just a quick review. Um, I've, I've put this timeline up here again. Um, creation, fall, redemption. Uh, that is all uh, there in the early chapters of um, uh, of Genesis, the first three chapters. The creation, of course, uh, chapters one and two. The fall, chapter three, and the first promise of redemption, Genesis three fifteen. And this this whole period, which is the period of promise pointing to, uh, ahead to, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, this, in the, in the minds and in the thinking and the language of the Old Testament prophets and really the whole of the Old Testament, is this age. And um, the promise points ahead to the age to come, the, the Messianic age, uh, the age of the Spirit, the, the, the age in which um, everything that is ravaged and corrupted and broken by the fall begins to be uh, put back together. And that happens. That begins to happen with the coming of Christ. And so this lower line continues. We are still in this age. Um, but we, we are also uh, participants in the age to come. We, we uh, share in the spirit and we are citizens of this messianic kingdom and of this messianic age, which really is going to continue 
after the consummation in the new heaven and the new earth forever and ever. But it's begun, it's inaugurated, and this dotted line represents uh, the incarnation of Christ, the coming of the King who inaugurates the age to come. The cross, of course, is at the center of all of human history, and then this dotted line going up in this direction represents his ascension. And by his ascension and by the outpouring of the Spirit, he really he completes this complex of events, beginning with his incarnation, culminating in his ascension, that inaugurate the age to come. And, we're, and I'm, I, I have this up here for you again because I want you to understand how I understand the unfolding story of redemption, beginning back in Genesis 1 and 2, um, and then particularly beginning with this first promise of Genesis 3, the promise that uh, from the seed of the woman, uh, one is going to come, who will be a serpent crusher, will crush the head of the serpent, and in overthrowing the serpent will eradicate evil. Someone has said um, that the whole of the rest of the Bible, not to minimize the whole of the rest of the Bible, but the whole of the rest of the Bible is a series of footnotes expounding the promise of redemption that is first made in Genesis 3.15. So that's just up there as a, a kind of a, a reminder for you of, um, of how we're, we're trying to understand um, how the Bible works, how the, the book of the Revelation relates to it. And then the second thing is just, just to remind you what I understand the main theme of the book to be and what I understand the main purpose of the book to be. Uh, and the main theme is simply this, to show Christ as king and sovereign over all. And as we continue to make our way through the book, we'll, we'll see that. Uh, in in varieties of ways. We're really going to see it in a couple of weeks when we look at chapters 4 and 5 and see Christ enthroned, uh, reigning, surrounded by myriad angels um, and receiving worship from the whole of the creation, including the elders and the church uh, and, and the rest of the creation. So the main theme is to show Christ as king and sovereign over all, reigning now, and who will return to overthrow evil, fulfilling Genesis 3.15. And it's the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 that we see toward the end of the book, chapters 18, 19, uh, and 20. And then the purpose that arises out of that main theme is to give comfort to his church that finds itself in the midst of tribulation. Uh, The purpose of this book is to give comfort to his church that finds itself in the midst of tribulation, hope, in the midst of suffering. So that's the main theme, and then the, the very practical pastoral purpose um, of the book. Now, I want to look uh, this week and next week at the letters to the seven churches. Um, and for those of you who are reading Derek Thomas um, and are faithful students and are expecting that we're going to go consecutively through these seven letters, I, I am here to disappoint you. I'm sorry. Because what I really want to do this week and next week is look at these letters um, more thematically, um, tracing themes, not only through these letters, but, but deeper into the book as well. And here's, here's why I want to do that. Um, I want to do it because I'm, I'm fundamentally a contrarian. And, and no, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, I, I want to do it because, for this reason. 
the, the book of the Revelation has uh, an internal coherence, okay? It has an internal coherence, as, as I think all of the books of the Bible do. There is an internal uh, structure. Um, it's a fascinating thing uh, to study and to, to reflect upon. But there is a coherence uh, to the book of the Revelation. And many people... Um, and uh, again, I'm, you, you know by now that I'm, I'm not here to pick a fight. But uh, many people understand the Bible to teach a seven-year tribulation after the age of the church uh, and before the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. Um, I want to suggest to you that while there are, and there are variations to that theme, those of you who are familiar with that uh, know that uh, regarding the tribulation, there are pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-tribulation rapture perspectives and views, and, and some variations on how the millennium exactly works itself out and Christ's uh, reign uh, on the earth. Um, but, but here's what I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest to you that a tribulation at the end of history and before the millennium, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, um, actually disrupts the internal coherence of the book. Um, it, it actually does violence to the internal coherence of the book um, by, by inserting um, the notion of, of a seven-year tribulation at the end of uh, this age at the end of the age of the church. And here's, to put it positively, here's what I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest to you that tribulation and suffering and the patient endurance that God's people are admonished with respect to in the midst of all of this tribulation and suffering um, with a recognition of Jesus reigning as king, holding all of history in his hands, these are themes that tie the revelation together. Okay? These are themes that tie the whole book together. I mentioned to you when we started this that I, I really do believe that John 1.9, or that uh, Revelation 1.9, is a key verse for understanding what is going on in this book, understanding John's purpose, um, understanding uh, how the book hangs together. Uh, John uh, writes in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God. Those, those words and phrases... Tribulation um, and patient endurance. Those are words and phrases that recur throughout the Revelation. And I really do believe that they are themes that tie the book together um, and, are, um, and the church across this whole period of time between the advents of Christ, the first advent and the second advent of Christ, the church is to understand that this is what life is going to be like. Life is going to involve suffering. Uh, life for Christians is going to involve tribulation. Now we're going to we're going to look next week at a couple of other themes that um, 
that recur in these letters and that recur um, in, um, in the rest of the book. Um, the theme of false teaching, the dangers of false teaching, uh, and the themes of worldliness and sensuality. Those are both themes that recur uh, in the seven letters and that will recur later in the book. But for tonight, what I want to do um, is, is walk us through passages in this book that I hope will illustrate the fact that tribulation is not some future thing limited to seven years at the end of the church age, but it is, in fact, a theme that is going to characterize the life of the church throughout the whole of the period between the first and second advents of Christ to greater or lesser extents, okay? So, again, um, yes, Yes, yeah, and we'll look at these themes next week. Uh, the themes of false teaching, the dangers and threats of false teaching, and uh, the danger and threat of worldliness and sensuality. Those are both themes that, that uh, recur in the seven letters and throughout the book as well. You're welcome. So just, just keeping in mind what, what John has said, the language that John has used, and and again, folks, um, I mean, I've, I've said this at the very beginning. I'm trying to be, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm trying to be honest about the fact that I do come to this book with a particular interpretive grid, okay? That's the, that's the business of, of hermeneutics, the science of interpretation, principles of interpretation. Um, it's not a disease. Uh, it's, it's, it's actually a, a biblical science, um, and and I come to this book with certain interpretive principles in mind. This is among them, my understanding of how redemptive history moves from the time of the fall to the end of history. And another interpretive principle is I, I, I just think we have to take the language that particular authors use seriously. Okay? So when John says... In the first century, I think in the, in the mid to late 90s of the first century, when John says that he is a partner with other first century Christians in the tribulation, we have to take him at his word. We have to take him at face value. And I think what we're going to see through, through um, these passages that we'll look at and then putting these passages in the larger context of um, the teaching of Jesus, the teaching of Paul, the teaching of Peter, I think we're, we're just going to see the tribulation, suffering, patient endurance required um, are, are constant themes um, in the life of the church and actually are themes that hold this book together. So... Right here. This is the, this whole period, the whole period from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ is a period of tribulation and suffering, and it is the, it is the reign of Christ. Now, you know, it's going to take us a while to, to get, you know, all of these dots connected, but um, that's, 
that's the case that I want to make, that, that this, this period between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ, again, using the language that John uses, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom. If you have a kingdom, you have a king. If you have a king, that king is reigning. And what we're going to see in chapters 4 and 5 is King Jesus ruling and reigning. And we're going to see the theme of, of King Jesus ruling and reigning over all of the nations, holding all of history in his hands repeatedly through the revelation. But we're also going to see the theme of suffering. Okay. Now, again, the, and, and then when we get to chapter 20, you're going to hear me say that the millennium is now. And it has been now since Jesus ascended. And throughout this thing, you're going to hear me say that we, ha- we have to take numbers the way numbers are intended to be taken. And seven means completeness. A thousand, ten times ten times ten, ten to the third power. Uh, ten is, is um, a wholeness, or in the case of um, the... Um, uh, the ten years of uh, tribulation that the church, um, where is it? We'll see it in a second. I remember which of the churches is. It, or, or it means intensity. There's going to be an intense persecution that, the, that this particular church is going to experience. Okay. So walk with me through these passages, and hopefully we'll be out of here by midnight or so. Revelation 2, the first of the letters, the letter to the church at Ephesus. And just, I'm, I'm going to try to minimize the comments. There are some comments I want to make uh, about these um, letters. But I'm going to try to minimize the comments, and I just want you to listen to the language, okay? Uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, The number seven, a symbolic number representing the church, whether it's the stars in his hand or the lampstands, both refer to the church. He holds the church in his hand. He walks among the lampstands. That's, I think we mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that's profoundly comforting and encouraging to know that the risen Jesus dwells among his people, walks among the lampstands. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Um, What are they enduring? How is their, how is their uh, faithfulness, uh, under what kinds of circumstances are they bearing up? Well, let me suggest to you, if, if, you, if you just sort of connect a couple of dots, um, this is a letter addressed to the church at Ephesus. If you go back to the book of Acts and you read the story in Acts 19 of the gospel, um, Establishing a foothold in Ephesus, uh, you'll read you'll read a couple of things there. You'll read the story of uh, the citizens, the narrative of the citizens of Ephesus 
filling the amphitheater and basically crying out for the heads of these people who have come to Ephesus to preach the gospel. And the reason they want the heads of these people who have come to Ephesus to preach the gospel is because so many people have embraced the gospel, it's begun to affect the local economy. The silversmiths are feeling the effects of the presence of the gospel. The silversmiths are the one who create the little statues of Diana that people take to their homes and worship. Okay, Ephesus is the center of the Diana cult. Uh, and the silversmiths who produce these little statues of the goddess Diana, sales are plummeting because of the presence of the gospel. So what does Paul feel? What are these? Uh, they feel persecution. They feel tribulation. The other thing that Ephesus was known for was, uh, was black and white magic. Um, and you read, you read Acts chapter 19, you'll, you'll read the narrative of all of these sorcerers and people involved in these practices bringing their books into the center of the city and burning them because the gospel was beginning to have such a profound effect. So what's the point? It, the point is that Ephesus was a place where the gospel was opposed. But they've been bearing up. They've been enduring patiently. Okay? Again, that's John John introduces both of those themes. Um, Look at um, verses 8 through 11 of chapter 2. To the church at Smyrna. uh, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Intense, localized persecution, opposition that these Christians are going to endure. But notice again, twice in those three verses, 9, 10, and 11, um, the word tribulation appears. Tribulation, suffering. Um, Revelation 2, verses 12 and 13. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name. Now, he doesn't use explicitly the language of patient endurance, but he's using language that describes perseverance. Endurance, describing the church at Pergamon. Um, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Um, Antipas, uh, after Jesus and, and Stephen and, and a host of others, uh, a martyr, one who, who um, suffers death um, because of his faithfulness to the gospel. Uh, Revelation 2, 18 and 19, the church at Thyatira. The words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. There's that language again, the language of patient endurance. 
Uh, Look at chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. To the church, uh, the angel of the church at Philadelphia. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. What's interesting um, about this, again, there is the language of patient endurance, but in the case of the church of Philadelphia, it appears as though the promise of Jesus is that they, at some level, to some extent, are going to be preserved and protected and kept from uh, severe persecution, unlike the church um, at Smyrna and other churches. So, I mean, that, and that's interesting. I think that what that tells us is that, uh, that again, I think it's fair to think this way, to, to, to realize that these uh, letters are addressed, yes, to specific churches, but they are addressed to the church across this whole period between the, the advents of Christ. And so I think what's suggested there is that some, some will not suffer the kind of opposition and persecution that some others um, across the life of the church will suffer. But again, the language of patient endurance is there um, in um, Jesus' words to the church at Philadelphia. So, you know, in, those are just, uh, again, examples through those two chapters of this, this language, this recurring idea, persecution, suffering, opposition, uh, churches being commended for patient endurance. Um, but, but now let's look beyond move beyond the letters and move into the, into the body of the book um, and uh, just refer to a couple of passages. First, uh, in Revelation chapter 6, the opening of the seals. Um, verses 9 and following, 9 through 11 of Revelation chapter 6. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Um, it's a fascinating, interesting passage. Martyrs um, kept under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. I, I had that in my, this passage in my notes this morning to mention uh, in connection with this you know, what is it that happens at death? The body and the soul are separated. Uh, the soul proceeds immediately into the presence of Christ to know um, communion with Christ, some real, vital, joy-filled interaction 
um, and, and fellowship with Christ. And yet it appears from uh, Revelation 6, from this uh, particular passage, that that joy is, is sort of peppered with, with some longing, right? The souls of the martyrs. Um, are they at rest? The text says that they are. Jesus tells them to rest a little longer. Are they fully content? Maybe not, right? When are you going to vindicate us? Um, when are you going to judge and avenge uh, our blood on those who dwell on the earth, meaning the ones who are responsible for their persecution uh, and their death? And Jesus uh, in effect, tells them that they are to rest a little bit longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers should be complete, which I think suggests pretty strongly that there will be more martyrs, that the number of the martyrs is not yet complete. So I, I, I think, you know, we look, we look at the life of the church today, you look at Christians uh, in Indonesia, you look at Christians in the south of the Sudan and in, in our own time, in the 80s, under the reign of Idi Amin, I mean, Christians, more people have been added to the number of the martyrs beneath the altar, preserved and kept by God, and clearly that number is not yet complete. And so I think it's fair to say that Jesus is still saying to the martyrs, rest a little while longer. The time is not finished. The number is not complete. So again, persecution and patient endurance, I think both uh, present in, in that passage. And then let me have you look at, at Revelation chapter 7. And um, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of uh, I'll skate over this because obviously we're going to come back to it and, and look at it in in much, uh, much greater detail um, in a few weeks. But um, uh, Revelation chapter 7 is um, the, the first eight verses is a, um, a, a picture, a description, verse 3, of the servants of God who have been sealed on their foreheads. And verse 4 says, I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then 12,000 from each of the tribes um, enumerated in verses 5 through 8. And then verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Now, who are these people? <laughs> who are these, these 144,000 in 
uh, the first part of this passage and then, um, and then this vast multitude from, that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages on the face of the earth. Well, I'll just suggest to you that I think both of these passages are pictures of the number of God's elect complete and gathered before his throne to worship him. The 144,000, I, I believe, is a representative number. Um, there, there are a couple of different ways that I think you can legitimately look at this. Uh, you can either look at it, um, I'm, I'm just undecided, you can either look at it in this way, um, 12 times 12 times 1,000, right? 12 times 12 is 144 times 1,000 is 144,000. I, I, I just suggest to you that it, that it is either the full complement of Jewish believers from both sides of the cross, okay? The, the remnant from national Israel on both sides of the cross, okay? Um, or it's, it's actually just a numerical valuation um, describing the full complement of God's people, both Jew and Gentile, from both sides of the cross, just being described as the true Israel. This is the true Israel. I, I, I find it fascinating and interesting that these tribes are specifically mentioned. And I, my inclination is to think that in some sense, what John is doing here, what Jesus is doing through John, um, is the kind of thing that the Apostle Paul is doing in Romans 9 through 11. The, the big question that Paul is wrestling with in Romans 9 through 11 is a question that comes from his countrymen. Has the promise of God failed? I mean, here you have all of these Jewish people who are rejecting the gospel. And that's a, that's a big issue for Paul uh, to address as he writes to these Christians in Rome. And basically, what he says, if you'll, just, if you'll just sort of take this as a summary of 9, 10, and 11, Romans 9, 10, and 11, basically what Paul is saying is, no, the promise of God hasn't failed. There has always been an elect people within the elect nation. There has always been a remnant, according to faith, in the elect nation Israel. Not all who are the physical seed of Abraham are the true spiritual seed of Abraham. So the promise hasn't failed. It's just that the promises are fulfilled in people like me. This is Romans 11. The promise of God hasn't, hasn't failed, for I am a Benjamite. I am a Jew. The promise is fulfilled in people like me, those who are elect, chosen by God for salvation from the midst of the elect nation. So, and I would just suggest that the possibility here that what, what John is doing is a similar sort of thing. He's just, he is reinforcing the idea that there are, in fact, Jewish people from all of these tribes who have really and truly embraced the gospel, really and truly uh, embraced Jesus as Messiah, and they are numbered among verse 9 and following, they are numbered among this great multitude that can't be numbered, this innumerable multitude that comes from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, not just um, the race uh, and the tongue of the Jewish people. 
Now, who are all of these people all together? Yeah, Henry. Where does... Um, It's, it's the multitude that is being gathered across this whole period. And John, what John is being given a vision of is that complete number at the end of history. Okay? It, it, it may be, let me just say this too. It, it may be that the word after this, it could be that, I don't know if that's giving you a problem. Okay. Yes, this is, this is a vision of the full complement of people having been gathered by the gospel out of every race and nation and tribe and tongue. Yeah, this this is a no. This is a vision of the of the future. I'm going to yes, right, right. He is he is being given a vision, and there's a reason for it, and I'll come to the reason for that in just a second. He is John is being given a vision of the full complement of the people who have been gathered by the gospel from across this whole period between his first and second advents. Okay. Now, who are they? To further answer the question. They're, they're both Jew and Gentile. They're from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, not from just among the sons of Israel, but every race and nation and tribe and tongue. Verse 13, the question is asked. One of the elders addressed me saying, who are these people clothed in white robes and where have they come from? And I said to him, you tell me. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne. This language that is used here in verse 9, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, that's, that's biblical language. I mean, that's, that's the language of the hope of the gospel. The, the gospel from the coming of Christ until the return of Christ is a gospel that goes out to every race and nation and tribe and tongue, and from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, one people is gathered to be the possession of the Son and the Father for all eternity. Okay? So my, my point right here is simply that in this vision, um, John uses the very imagery and the very language that he uses back in chapter 1, verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation, the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, the, the words and the images, uh, the word tribulation, the word suffering, images of suffering through the letters, martyrdom in uh, chapter 6. Um, again, it's this theme of tribulation and suffering across this whole period um, that uh, ties this book together, one of the themes. And I'm convinced that what is being described here, as I've said, Henry, is, is um, in, in chapter 7, is a vision of the full complement of those for whom Christ has died, gathered and assembled before the throne to worship and to praise Jesus as the King.
and to, and to praise him for the salvation that he has secured for them. Okay? Now, let, let, me, let me show you something. Again, you can, we, we can have some questions. You can interact with me about this. But let me show you something that's very interesting structurally about this book. There are three, if you have the ESV study Bible, it's a, by the way, I'm not, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't get anything for, you know, us selling these things, but um, it has great introductory material to the book of the Revelation. Um, And in, um, in the outline um, that you'll find, the outline for the book and that introductory material, um, the outline reflects that there are three interludes that you'll find in this book. And this is fascinating, and it's a, it's a structural thing. In the midst of the opening of the seals, between the opening of the sixth and the seventh seals, you find this interlude, chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Okay? In the midst um, of the sounding of the trumpets, you find a second interlude, chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 14. Okay? And then, in the midst of the outpouring of the bowls of wrath, you find the third interlude, chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And I'm convinced that these interludes are answering basically this question. As history moves in the direction of final judgment and the overthrow of of evil, what is going on with God's people? Okay? The the six seals, and and let let me just connect you back to Ezekiel chapter 2, which provides the Old Testament background uh, to the scroll and the seals. And in Ezekiel chapter 2, there is a scroll, and that scroll is open, and it contains words of woe and uh, lamentation, okay? It is a scroll that predicts, that prophesies a coming judgment. So the scroll that the Lamb, that Jesus, will begin to open in chapter 6 is a scroll that contains words of judgment, all right? So here's the relationship. Among the, among the opening of the scroll, the, the, the seven seals, um, the seven trumpets, and then the seven bowls of wrath. Okay? The seven seals reveal that judgment is coming, coming. The scroll reveals that judgment is coming. The trumpets announce that judgment is coming. The bowls of wrath are the execution of that judgment, the outpouring of that judgment. You remember um, back when we were doing some introductory stuff, I said that there is this idea of progressive recapitulation in this book. Certain things get recapitulated. Certain aspects of the story get retold. But the whole time this thing is moving in the direction of, of, of the final overthrow of evil. Well, the scroll contains those words of judgment. The trumpets announce that the judgment is coming, and the bowls of wrath are the outpouring of that judgment upon the beast and the false prophet and the harlot, the whole deal. Okay? We're moving progressively in the direction of that final judgment. And these penultimate judgments, 
The judgments that you see revealed as the, as the scroll is open, as the trumpets are sounded, the judgments that lead up to the final judgment, the question that, that, that you ask in the midst of that is, what is happening with God's people? Okay? Well, here's the answer to that. And I'm, I'm going to give you, this is, this is my way, just my way of sort of summarizing uh, what it is that's going on in each of these three passages. In chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, in the midst of the opening of the seals, the opening of the scroll, the church's members are being kept safe. Okay? They're sealed. They're sealed on their foreheads. They're being identified, marked as belonging to God. The seal is a seal of ownership. It's a seal that is applied by the king. Chapter 7 is telling us that in the midst of the opening of these seals, God has marked those who belong to him, both Jew and Gentile, from every race and nation and tribe and tongue, and they will be gathered at the feet of Jesus before his throne to celebrate and rejoice before him. The church's members are being kept safe. Okay, That's chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Chapter 10, verse 1 through 11, 14 and we'll, we'll have a chance to look at this in detail, the church's message is being preserved. Okay? The church's message is being preserved. Um, the, the 10th chapter, 11th chapter, talks about the two witnesses. If you, if you look at, that, par- at that, uh, uh, that chapter, it is just so abundantly clear that the two witnesses are depictions, pictures, references to Moses and Elijah. Okay? Um, and um, so I, I, I don't want to get into the details because we'll get to them eventually. But, but, but just read chapter 11 and, and understand that what John is doing there is using Old Testament imagery, Moses and Elijah who met with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration They represent the Old Testament prophetic office. Now on this side of the cross, the church has been entrusted with the prophetic message, and the church's message is going to be preserved. The the message of the gospel is going to be heralded, and it will be heralded with success. Even though the Gentiles constantly threaten the true Israel, even though unbelief constantly threatens the true Israel, The message of the gospel will be preserved. And then chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, because at the ascension of Christ, this is the chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, is the passage that refers to the binding of Satan and the millennial reign of Christ. Okay? Thousand year reign of Christ and the binding of Satan. Um, If you look at chapter 20, um, there is a specific reason for the binding of Satan. And that specific reason, verse 3, is that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Here is what happened at the ascension of Christ. At the ascension of Christ, the strong man was bound by the stronger man so that the strong man might no longer deceive the nations so that the stronger man, who is Jesus, might plunder the house of the strong man. 
might rescue a people from the world, the world that has been kept in darkness and bondage and sin and death. Now the stronger man, having ascended to the throne of his father, now plunders the house of the strong man and does it across this whole period of the, of the, uh, the millennial reign. So Christ is reigning. Now what, what's that all about? The church's mission is going to be successful. Okay? So chapter 7, 1 through 17, the church's members are kept safe. 10, 1 through 11, 14, the church's message is preserved. 20 verses 1 through 6, the church's mission is secure and will be successful. Those three interludes answer the question, in the midst of this unfolding story of judgment, as everything moves in the direction of the final overthrow of evil,